the words of these song of the song are so true, especially um, in the last stanza when it tells us that blind unbelief is sure to err, err and scan his words in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Sometimes the Lord makes his makes it plain for us, his purposes behind his mysterious ways. Uh, sometimes he delays making that known to us until future times. Whether it is sooner or later, um, we are called and are reminded that we can trust in the providence of God uh, to work out his purposes uh, according to his plan for his glory and ultimately and eternally for our good. Uh, this morning, we will look and see and consider a story, uh, a true story in the lives of the people of God in the Old Testament where God acted this way, where God gave his own interpretation on what he was doing, even when it seemed like things were just going along the half by chance or in ways that people did not expect or want to. Would you open God's word? to 1 Samuel chapter 9. And we are going to be looking at um, this chapter and read all the way to chapter 10, verse 16. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 16. Uh, you may find this passage in the middle of the Old Testament. I'm sure that uh, if you don't have pew Bibles, I cannot tell you the page number, but I encourage you to find the the passage of scripture to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, as we are continuing our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. <laughs> now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, Come, let us go back lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, <coughs> Behold, there is a man of God in the city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. When Saul said to his, then Saul said to his servant, But if we go... What can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, 
I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet is formerly called a seer. And Saul said to the servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? Uh, they answered, He came. Uh, behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him uh, before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up. For you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw, saw Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because they cry, their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He, is, he it is who shall restrain my people. And Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? But Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he laid down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. 
that Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's king in the territory of Benjamin at Gilgal. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? And you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Uh, three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath, Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come into the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now that now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeath, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has happened over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servants, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. And about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray? Asking God to bless our hearts as we hear it. Father, we give you praise and honor for revealing us your word. Father, as we stand before you today, gathered in the name of Christ, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts in a way that draws our hearts to you, in a way that enables us to trust you, in a way that strengthens us, encourages us, confronts us, and draws us back to you. Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, for his glory and honor, we pray. Amen. Amen. Today's story in uh, the Old Testament from the passage we have just read can be summarized in the following way. God 
raises a king. Uh, the book of Samuel is a book preoccupied with who reigns over God's people. The book started with corrupt priests leading at Shiloh, and God judged them and destroyed them. Then God raised the last judge in the person of Samuel, who would lead God's people through the transition of having a king to establish kingship in Israel. And starting with chapter 9, this uh, major transition takes place, the transition to kingship in Israel. God sets up his kingship through a human king. Now in chapter 8, the people of Israel showed, or their leaders, their elders, showed their rejection of God's reign over them by requesting a king in order to be like the nations around them. And God commanded Samuel to accept their request. Why? If, if the motivation of the people or of the leaders was wrong, why would God still tell Samuel to go and accept the request and go and establish a king for them? Well, because God had revealed as early as the book of Genesis that he will raise up kings from the seed of Abraham. Kingship for God's people was part of God's plan from early on. But the way the people of Israel asked for kingship was wrong. Their motivation for it was wrong. Yet even in the midst of, of corrupted requests, God shows up and surprises us in three ways. We might expect God at this moment in the story to say to the elders, if you elders are rejecting me, I'm just going to let you on your own way. I'm going to remove myself from guiding you. I'm going to remove myself from providing for you. But here's God surprising his people, surprising Samuel himself, that he, God, will show up and provide for his people. And he does it in three ways. Chapter 9 and 10 tell us how God sets up kingship and provided the first human king for his people. And three, three words could describe how God surprised his people at this moment in their lives. Uh, these three words are providence, compassion, and equipping. Providence, compassion, and equipping. To put these words in full sentences, we might say the following. God acts providentially to raise up a king. God acts out of his compassion to give his people a king. Finally, God equips the king to be uh, for the calling. God equips the king to be for the calling. Let's look at these three concepts or th these three moves. God's providence, God's compassion, and God's equipping as the Lord provides kingship for his people. God's providence. We see this in the, in the beginning parts of the story. God acts providentially to raise a king. The first major scene in this narrative starts with the introduction of a new character, Saul. He's presented in verses 1 and 2 as belonging to a wealthy family from the tribe of Benjamin. Why does this matter? Because the book of Judges closed on the story of how the tribe of Benjamin was almost eradicated because of their sin. Remember that? The, the, the tribe of Benjamin almost became extinct 
And yet, here is a wealthy man from the tribe of, of Benjamin. And this man had a, a son by the name of Saul. And we are told that Saul was the most handsome man in Israel. And not only was he the handsomest, he was also the tallest. If, uh, if they had a contest called uh, Mr. Israel, Samuel would have gotten, would have won the contest. Uh, people literally would look up to Samuel because of his height. Surely he made a first great impression on anyone who would first see him. As soon as Saul is introduced, a, a crisis also is presented to us. A crisis takes place in his family. Uh, the family lost uh, their big herd of donkeys. So the father, uh, uh, Kish, Saul's father, sends the son, Sam, uh, Saul, and one of the servants to look for the donkeys. Well, the story of the search for the donkeys unfolds as Saul and his servants uh, keep going from place to place, day after day, and as their search proves to be unsuccessful. Uh, they were so unsuccessful that they get to the place, uh, to a point in their search, when they want to give up. Saul suggests that they should return back home uh, without the donkeys. Yet, as a last attempt, the servant suggests that they should check out a local prophet uh, who might help them in their search. Uh, the impression we get at this moment in the story is that as handsome and tall as Saul was, he never heard about the prophet Samuel, which is rather odd. By now, in the story of the book of 1 Samuel, as Samuel is at the end of his life, he had served the Lord for, for a whole generation. The Lord has done wonderful things through Samuel to all of Israel. And here is Saul, not even having a clue that a man of God, a prophet, existed. Uh, well, the culmination of the search for the donkeys reaches a climax when Saul and his servant finally meet Samuel. But before Saul and Samuel get to meet, the narrator tells us some key details. Uh, and uh, The narrator tells us that a prior day, a day prior to Saul coming to meet Samuel, the Lord gave Samuel an important message. And we, the readers, are clued in into that message so that we may understand the, the really the meaning of this unfolding of the unsuccessful search. What is this about? Uh, look with me to verse 15 and 16. They are like the, 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 the hinge that, that move the story from one stage that seemed to be accidental and just a crisis and a failure to realize, oh, no, no, this is not just an accident. This is not just a, a failed search process. The Lord is up to doing something, and he's revealing his servant what is going on. Look at verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Now in these verses, both Samuel and us, the readers, have a clue, an insider's perspective 
that Saul had no idea about. The sending of Saul by his father to look for the donkeys was actually God working to send Saul to Samuel. Now let me ask you, who sent Saul on this journey? Was it Kish or was it God? Think about this. Who sent Saul on this journey? Kish or God? The answer is both. Clearly, in the family crisis that took place in Kish's family, Kish sent off Saul to look for the donkeys. Uh, Kish's plan was to send his son, the tallest man, in his family, tallest man in Israel, to look for some donkeys. Kish had a good idea. Kish acted, if you will, out of his own free will, irresponsibly to do something to figure out a solution for the crisis. But we also find out that actually, through Kish's sending off, it was God who was working through this crisis. Through Kish's decision to send Saul on the search for the donkeys, through the selection of a servant to accompany Saul, and it wasn't just any servant, but a servant who happened to know about the existence of a prophet in a nearby town, and through a servant who happened to have a silver uh, coin to be able to give to the man of God. All these details were God's work to send Saul to find Samuel, even though if you asked Kish or Saul or his servant, they would have told you, that they were making all these plans all along. They were just going by from one station to the next, trying to figure it out as they go along. But as we see this unfolding of the search, of a failed search, we realize and we are told explicitly that God's providence was working through each of these accidental steps. God's providence uses our responsible actions accomplish his plans. Friends, this is God's providence. He, he works in our mundane experiences, whether those experiences are just routine experiences, no big deal happening in our lives, or whether those experiences are crises, and we try to respond and try to, to figure out of solutions. God is involved in our lives, in the joys we experience in the mundane details, and even in the crises we face. And knowing that God is provident in our lives can bring us peace and comfort. It can also protect us from pride, thinking that the outcome of our plans depends on us. Recognizing God's providence over the outcome of our lives also enables us to trust Him for the outcome. Right now, I don't know why the wind is so strong and you hear the echo in the room. But perhaps it's a way for making you a little uncomfortable so that you can pay attention more to the words that are being spoken. I don't know what God's providence is through this detail. But I can tell you this, Proverbs 69, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. This is the greatness of God. That no matter how confident we may feel in our planning and in our strategy, no matter how hopeless and discouraged we may be in our life journey, 
the Lord is the one who establishes the outcome. Sometimes I wonder if you can trust him in the details of your life right now. I don't know what the details are for you. Good, joyful, or challenging, hopeless, frustrating. From a human level, the entire search that Saul went on seemed to be a failure. But from God's perspective, a failed search for the donkeys was a means by which God sent Saul to meet Samuel. Friends, the Lord is accomplishing his plans through our life experiences, even when those experiences are a crisis. Even through our failures and disappointments, the Lord is accomplishing his plan with us. If you're not in a moment of crisis or disappointment or frustration right now, you will be at some point. Some of those moments may come later this fall. Students, as you have just started a new semester, and if you think like things are going well so far, just wait a few weeks. Things will become turbulent. Um, things will become frustrating. You might hit moments of hopelessness. But trust that God, through the details that he lets you experience, and even to the failures he will let you have, the Lord is at work. He makes no mistake in what he allows you to experience. Nothing is mere chance or just an accident or just a coincidence. In this first scene of the story of God raising up a king, we see that God acts providentially. This is the first lesson we see, God's providence. There's a second lesson we get to see in this unfolding of God raising a king. And that's God's compassion. God's compassion. God acts to raise up a king because of his compassion for his people. You might wonder, and I certainly have wondered in, in studying through this passage, why is God so closely involved in the selection of a king, especially when in chapter 8, we learned that the elders requested a king in order to be like the nations. The elders of Israel, at, at the moment of chapter 8, clearly took a wrong turn. The leadership of the people of God led wrongly. So why is the Lord so closely involved in selecting an, a king for his people? On one side, it's because the Lord had intended from the beginning that his people should have kings as we have seen early on in the book of Genesis and throughout the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. Uh, but another explicit reason why the Lord acts so, so clearly and directly and providentially is given to us in verse 16 that uh, we have read here in the story. Look at when, 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 Saul, when God told Samuel uh, about the sending of Saul, look at what else the Lord says. It says, tomorrow, verse 16, tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. Do you hear that explanation, why God is acting the way he is towards his people? Why God is acting providentially in such explicit ways and such direct ways to raise up a, a, a king? For, he says, for I have seen my people because their cry has come up to me. Oh, friends, this language 
of, I have seen my people, and their cry has come up to me. This language is, is a language that is not new to the Old Testament. It showed up again earlier in the story of the Old Testament, particularly when God saw the plight of his people in Egypt. And when God revealed himself to Moses and said, I am going to deliver my people. I am going to bring deliverance for them. He gave this explanation, for I have seen my people, and their cry has come up to me. Oh, friends, it's, it's God using that heart of compassion, and that shows up again in this moment of raising up a king. God raises a king because of his compassion for the plight of his people. I love how one Bible commentator put it so beautifully. There is much meaning in the simple expression, their cry is come up to me. It denotes a very tender sympathy, a concern for all that they have been suffering, and a resolution to interpose on their behalf. God is never impassive nor indifferent to the sorrows and sufferings of his people. God acts. Because of his compassion. So because of his compassion, the Lord raises up a king for his people. And now when the Lord reveals to Samuel that Saul is the man that the Lord is sending, the Lord gives one description about Saul that has greatly puzzled interpreters. Look at verse 17. When Saul, Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now that's a puzzling description. It seemed that Saul is tall and polished. It seemed saw that Saul was handsome, the most handsome in Israel. But here, the Lord says, it is he who shall restrain my people. Now the, the Hebrew word for restrain has several meanings. Uh, some use it in a it can mean in a negative meaning of, of holding off in a negative way. Uh, but the word can also mean to rule or to govern. So one Bible translation, and depending on which translation you're using, it may have something like, this one shall rule over my people. Commentators debate whether the word restrain is to be used positively or negatively. Uh, will this king be a blessing or a curse? God's people. Now, at this point in the story, it's really unclear how we should take this verse or this description. I personally am inclined to believe that intended positively. God intends this king to be a means by which God governs his people to restrain them from the chaos of self-rule. After all, the book of Judges not only closed on the note of the chaos of self-rule, but the book of Judges also associated the chaos of self-rule with the lack of kingship. Um, you don't have to turn there, but the very last sentence in the book of Judges uh, says the following, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, in other words, self-rule or the chaos of self-rule, when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, was rampant because there was no king in Israel. So having a God-appointed ruler presumably 
would restrain the chaos of self-rule, assuming that the ruler would himself submit himself to God's word. So it is possible that when God says that the king he appoints will restrain his people, it's meant to have a positive effect in the sense of restraining them from their self-rule. This is only possible if the king himself will follow not his devices, but will follow wholeheartedly the word of the Lord. Even though the elders of, of Israel had wrong motives for asking for a king, the Lord answered their request because he was moved with compassion at the cries of his people. The leaders acted wrongly. The people suffered because of that. It's so true. When, when leadership leads corruptly, the people suffer the most. Uh, and God here shows his compassion to ask and provide for his people and bring kingship. It's as if God is saying, establishing a king over my people is the means by which I will bring deliverance for my people. Uh, the establishment of godly authority, dear friends, the establishment of godly authority over us is a plan that God has for our deliverance. It, it's supposed to benefit us. Now, as we know the, the story of, of Saul, as we know the book of Saul or Samuel unfolding, we know that Sa Saul ended up not following the Lord. And therefore, as a leader, his leadership became corrupted and became a negative curse because he chose not to follow the Lord. But that does not mean that kingship was to be a curse. The kingship that was installed and was inaugurated here at this moment in the, in the time of, of the Old Testament was pointing forward to, the, to another king who would end up obeying the Lord wholeheartedly. A king who actually obeyed the Lord in all the Lord's words, in all that the Lord revealed. This king, this ultimate king, eventually for his obedience to the Lord, died on a cross, being rejected by his own people, and he died as the king of the Jews. It was Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, the Lord would bring the ultimate deliverance so that all who repent and believe in Christ may be forgiven of their sins and receive eternal life. Friends, God's authority over us is a good thing when that authority particularly follows the Lord in all God's word. Friends, when, when God sets an authority over us, he does it out of compassion for our plight. I wonder if you see God's authority over you as a means of compassion for you. Jesus Christ came to be both a Savior and Lord of our lives. He came not merely to save, but he came to, to be Lord over us and to establish God's kingship over us. And that is a good thing. I wonder if you have trusted in this God who would set up a king over his people to redeem them from the plight of sin and death and judgment. If you have never trusted in Christ, if you have never repented of your sins, if you have never submitted to God's authority over you, a loving, compassionate authority, I pray that you would do so today. God shows us and he surprises us by his providence. God shows and surprises us by his compassion. Thirdly, in the story, we see how God shows up 
and surprises us by equipping the man for the job. God equips the man for the job. After Saul met Samuel, Saul is invited to the banquet and given a seat of honor. At the point of the journey of Saul's failed search for the donkeys, remember that Saul and his servant are out of bread. And they have given the last money they have. There's nothing else for this man. How is he going to make it through to just get back home to his father? And here, he meets Samuel, hoping that he would get some direction to find the donkeys. And he not only finds direction for the donkeys, he's going to find a kingdom. And God calling him to be the man for the throne of that kingdom. And before even all that is exposed, Samuel invites him to a banquet. And he's not just a servant at the banquet. He's not just one of the guys who showed up last minute and, uh, and sort of gets the leftovers from the banquet. Oh, no, Samuel prepared and made sure that when Saul shows up, he's going to have the seat of honor. He's going to be the, the centerpiece of the banquet. He's going to get the biggest meal from all the people that were invited to the banquet. It's amazing how God turns this hopeless search, this failed search, this this hungry search at this point, this resourceless search for the donkeys. And here Saul is, is honored. Saul is invited to a meal where he is the center of the meal. And not only that, but the Lord equips Saul after anointing him, equips him with assurance, equips him with his spirit, equips him with his words, and equips him with a new heart. Look at these things that the Lord does for Saul after anointing Saul. The next day, the next morning, after Samuel anoints Saul, really, and uh, pours oil on Saul as a means of the Lord anointing Saul, notice, notice the assurance. Verse 1, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you, uh, you will save them from the hand of, the, of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Well, friends, from verse 2 to 6, we read about three signs that the Lord gave Saul. And these signs have a very clear purpose, to assure and to convince Saul that the anointing done by Samuel that morning was the anointing of God over his life. Then in verses 9 through 13, we find out that Saul departs from Samuel. And each of the three signs that Saul, that Samuel gave, each of them come to pass. And the last of the signs is the one that's emphasized most. Of the three signs, the third one was the most puzzling. In making Saul speak among the prophets, God was showing that He's able to give his spirit to this appointed king. Saul will need the spirit of God for the task. The, the, the kingship over God's people will be to the extent that, that the king God anoints will have the spirit of God over him. An interesting pattern that will prepare the way for the time when Jesus Christ will come to earth. Remember at the moment of his baptism, we see the sign of the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have the Spirit prior to that moment. 
But now there is a spirit of God that's coming down for the empowerment for ministry. As Saul is experiencing this pattern, he's called to be a king, and God assures him, not only with signs, but God gives him and equips him with his spirit for the task of being a king. And also, not only the spirit, but God also gives him the word. Samuel made clear to Saul that he's to wait for Samuel to show up to receive more instructions of what he is to do. In doing so, Saul's weight and presence of the Spirit are not in contradiction with what the Lord was to reveal to, to Saul through Samuel. I love how one Bible teacher puts it so beautifully. Saul the king, who is promised Yahweh's power, is to submit to Samuel the prophet who brings Yahweh's word. Yahweh's Spirit gives power, but that power is to be exercised in obedience to Yahweh's word. The Spirit and the word must never be separated. What right have we to think that we can enjoy the Lord's power and presence when we deny His Lordship by trampling on His word? Here, at this moment of equipping, Samuel sets an important pattern that will be clear for Saul to know. Yes, you have the Spirit of God, but you also need to continue to obey the Word of God. Listen to the Word of God. Do God's instructions. And as we will see later in the life of Saul, this connection between the Spirit of God and the Word of God, Saul will end up trampling on his foot. But at this moment in the story, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. At this moment in the story, God is generous to provide Samuel with signs of assurance, with his spirit, with his word, and also with a new heart. Look at verse 10, chapter uh, verse 9, chapter 10. When he returned back to leave Samuel, God gave him, Saul, a new heart. Why is this significant? Because it shows that the qualification for a king to live his responsibility before the Lord to govern God's people requires spirit, a spirit of God, requires the obedience of God's word, but requires having the same heart. The description of a new heart should not be understood in the sense of the of regeneration, like in the new covenant. When God will regenerate his people, a person's heart will make that person a brand new being. Uh, that will be permanent. At this point in this story, the new heart that is being talked about is not regeneration. Uh, no, instead, this is a way of saying that God has given Saul a new disposition and desire for being a king. It's not a new heart in the, in the sense of salvation but a new heart in the sense of being ready for the task of being a king. God is equipping Samuel for the task of being a king. God gives him signs of assurance, his spirit, his word, and a new heart. There's an old phrase I've heard many years ago when I was young. God does not call the equipped, but he equips the called. Saul's story. Friends, you don't need to think of yourself as having gifts that somehow make you meet up certain standards for God to call you to do something. Rather, God takes the, the, the people who may not have the, the right equipping and God is able to equip them for the work he calls us. What a generous God we have. God acts 
in providing and raising a king by showing his providence, being directly involved in the details of, of Saul's life. God acts compassionately, hearing the heart and the, hear the cries of his people. God acts generously to equip Saul for the call. I read a story um, that was told uh, by several Bible teachers. One of them was Bill Arnold, a Bible teacher who retells a true story that was printed in a 1949 edition of Reader's Digest. I know, Reader's Digest. He writes this, and I, I want to read for you. It's a longer story, but it illustrates the power of God working through details in our lives when we have no explanation. Listen along to the story. On January 10th, 1948, just over two years after the conclusion of World War II, Marshall Sternberger got on a train in the Brooklyn subway that he had never been on before. He normally took a different line, but he had changed his schedule that day in order to visit a sick friend and was now boarding a noon train to get to work. The train was full, but just as he stepped in, one man jumped off and ran off, realizing he was about to miss his station. Sternberger quickly took the seat and sat down. Next to him was a man reading a newspaper, a Hungarian newspaper. Sternberger had been born in Hungary, and though he would not normally strike up a conversation with strangers in the subway, he felt compelled to say something at that moment. He looked over the man's shoulder and said in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. The man was surprised to be addressed in his native language. And during the half-hour ride to the town, uh, they became acquainted with each other. Uh, Sternberger's companion voluntarily shared his tragic story. His name was Paskin, and he had been a law student when the war started. He was eventually put into a labor battalion and sent to Ukraine. After the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot, returning to his hometown in Debrecen, Hungary, and discovered his entire family gone. When he reached the apartment that he and his wife had shared, it was occupied by strangers. Finally, he located old friends who survived the war, and they sadly informed him that his entire family was dead. The Nazis had taken them and his wife to Auschwitz, where they were all presumably killed in the gas chambers. Stunned by the news, the man fled Hungary, which had become a funeral land for him. He headed west towards Paris and eventually immigrated to the United States in October of 1947. As Sternberger listened, uh, the story somehow seemed familiar. Suddenly, he remembered why. He had recently met a young woman at the home of friends who had also been from Debrecen, Hungary. She had been taken to Auschwitz and was then transferred to work in a German munitions factory. All her relatives had been killed in the gas chambers. 
after she had been liberated by the Americans, she was brought to New York in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Sternberger had been so moved by her story that he had written down her address and phone number, hoping to invite her to meet his family in order to help her with the terrible loneliness and the grief she experienced. Sternberger thought it impossible that there would be a connection between these two people. But when he reached his station, he stayed on the train with his new friend a little longer. He asked as casually as possible, is your first name Bela? The man went pale as he said, yes. How did you know? Sturberger fumbled for his address book as he asked, was your wife's name Maria? Looking as though he might faint, Hoshkin said, yes, yes. Sternberger suggested that they get off at the next station without explaining why. He took Pashkin to a nearby phone booth. While Pashkin stood there like a man in a trance, uh, Sternberger dialed the number. And after a long delay, he had Maria Pashkin on the line. Sternberger reminded her of their recent chance meeting, and she remembered him. Without explaining why, Sternberger asked Maria where she had lived in Debrecen before the war, and she told him the address. Sternberger turned to Bela and said, did you and your wife live on such and such a street? Yes, Bela explained, exclaimed as he turned white as a sheet and trembled. Then Sternberger handed Bela the phone, saying, Take this phone and talk to your wife. When Poshkin realized he was really speaking with his Maria, he broke into uncontrollable sobs. Sternberger sent him by taxi to the address he had been writing. The article continues by describing the emotional reunion between Posh the Poshkins, each of whom thought the other was dead. And this is how the Reader's Digest, Digest ends the article. A skeptical person would no doubt attribute the events of that memorable afternoon to mere chance. Was it chance that made Sternberger suddenly decide to visit his sick friend and hence take a subway line that he never would have been on before? Was it chance that caused the man sitting by the door of the car to rush out just as Sternberger came in? Was it chance that caused Bela Poshkin to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it chance, or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon? The story of Maria and Bela Poshkin is an illustration of God's providential work. A story like this may leave us amazed at how God would orchestrate such small details, such seemingly mundane details, in order to bring about his plan. In this case, a, a great deliverance, a great reunion, 
Friends, God's providential hand is at work in our lives. Whether we see the outcome of that in such amazing, emotion-filled, moving stories like Maria and, and, and Bela Pashkin, clearly God's providential hand was at work in Saul's life. And the chapter in 1 Samuel uh, reveals to us explicitly that God was working through all these unsuccessful moves that brought Saul to be a failure in his search and brought him to meet Samuel to eventually meet the call to the throne and be the means by which God would establish his kingship over the people of God. Friends, in raising up Samuel as the first king, God was showing up and he showed in clear neon lit signs that he was involved through and through in raising up a king for Israel. Nothing of this election was mere chance. God's providence was working through the crisis of a family and through the failure of a searching with no success to bring Saul to meet Samuel, to anoint him as king and to equip him for the task entrusted to him. Friends, are you and I willing to trust God with the details of our lives, whether they are mundane, whether they are crises, whether they are frustrations, your life circumstances may seem like a big mess, or they may, may seem like a mundane, uneventful uh, story of, of, of events. But know that with the Lord, no details are mere accidents. No details are insignificant. We can trust in God who acts providentially, who acts compassionately, and who acts lavishly to equip his people for the calling he gives us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being a God who leads your people. Even when your people make missteps, that take wrong turns, you are a God who are compassionate and providentially works through all the details of our lives. And you are lavish to give us and equip us for the work you call us. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to trust in your leadership of our lives. Help us to trust you in the leadership of our church, in the leadership of, of, of all that you are involved to do. Lord, give us hearts ready to listen. Give us hearts ready to trust. Give us hearts ready to take your leadership over our lives. To experience the peace that comes with that. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray for his glory and honor.